So we're in this series, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, and I'm so glad to see all of you here today. I want to welcome those worshiping with us online as well. Now, I want to start off by asking you a question, and the question is, why are people who have drunk so much inclined to make bad decisions? Huh? Have you ever thought about that? What's the correlation between alcohol consumption and poor decision-making? I mean, as far as I know, there's no correlation between alcohol consumption and good decision-making, is there? I mean, I've never heard a story that concluded this way. And it's a good thing I was drunk because I might have made a bad decision. <laughs> you just don't really see that anywhere, do you? Now, I I've never heard that before. Back to the question, why is it that people who have drunk too much make bad decisions? Well, let me answer that question for you. Physiologically speaking, there are two reasons. Alcohol increases neoprenephrine in the brain, which is a stimulant. Stimulants, of course, increase impulsiveness and decrease inhibition. Also, alcohol actually temporarily impairs the activity in the prefrontal cortex, and that's the part of the brain that lets you think rationally and make good decisions. Okay? So alcohol frees a person to act without thinking clearly or feeling appropriately. What it does is it makes the brave cautious. It makes those who are brave uh, when we should be cautious, and it makes people loud when we should be quiet. I think Ron White said it best when he described being arrested for public drunkenness. He said, at that point, I had the right to remain silent but I didn't have the ability. <laughs> when somebody's drunk, they don't consciously ignore common sense. It's like common sense just doesn't even exist at that point. It's just shut off. So today we're in part four of better decisions, fewer regrets, and the big idea is the relationship between good questions help us make good decisions. I'm convinced that if you'll answer the five questions in this series, I honestly, and if you'll act on those five questions, that you will make better decisions and have fewer regrets. Now, I ask you to look at Proverbs, the 27th chapter, verse 12, a couple of weeks ago, and it says this, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. In other words, Look beyond the immediate. Sometimes the immediate looks like that's a good decision, good thing to do in the, in the short run. But ultimately, it's not going to be a good decision. It's a bad decision, and you're going to have regrets when you make it. So if you look at that, self, that, that question, those five questions will help slow us down and help us see danger coming. Now, if you weren't here, the first question is the integrity question. And here's the integrity question. Am I being honest with myself, really? And you have to add really on at the end because the person in the mirror is the easiest person in the world to deceive. If you haven't been here, we've discovered in previous weeks that we all lie like a rug <laughs> to ourselves. I'll give you an example. I'll prove it. How many of you have said, I am losing weight? <laughs> and then you got on the scale. And somehow that didn't work out with what you said you were doing, right? So we lie to ourselves. Are you selling yourself on something you'll regret later? 
The second question is the legacy question, and that's this. What story do I need to tell? What story do I want to tell? When you have to make a decision, we talked about Joseph last week. Over and over again, he made the right decision. He wanted to tell a story that he could tell his children and grandchildren someday, and he always made the right choice. And the good news is that you and I get to decide one decision at a time. And so that brings us back to where we opened, and that is this. Intoxicated people cannot focus and pay attention to external and internal clues. But sober people are also guilty of choosing to ignore those things as well. I mean, intoxicated people have silenced their conscience. Sober people just ignore their conscience. And so sometimes there's an internal tension. Let's say you got to make a decision. And while you're thinking about it, there's just something that's bugging you about it. You can't put your finger on it. Something's bothering you. There's something wrong with it, but you can't explain it. You know, there's just this tension that's there. So that leads us to the third question, and that is this. Is there tension that deserves my attention? If you've got a little thing in the back of your mind, it's bugging you, it's gnawing at you, you may need to stop and pay attention to that. You don't know why it's there. Sometimes people describe that as a red flag moment. I just had a, a red flag moment. I had a check in my spirit. There was something not quite right, something not quite kosher, and so I just didn't want to do that. Pay attention to the tension. Don't ignore it. In fact, people who understand the brain say those red flag moments are the way for the brain to alert us to pay attention in certain situations. And if we pause and if we think and if we give it some time, usually we'll make the right decision. And if we don't pause, we won't make the right decision. So let's say you got to make a choice and you're making it and you've been thinking about it and it's something you've been looking at for some time and you're ready to make it, and everything seems right. Nothing's bothering you. Everything's fine. And then somebody comes along and points out something that you hadn't considered. Mothers are really good at doing this, I've noticed. <clears throat> you know? Well, that sounds really good, son, except have you considered that it is illegal to do that? Oh, Mom, come on. You always got to got to be a, a party pooper. Well, you know, sometimes they're right, aren't they? And so just pay attention. There's a slight hesitation. There's a reason for it. And then th th there's a difference, too, between us listening to the truth and dodging it. Now, have you ever noticed this to be the truth? Let's say someone is telling you the truth. They're telling you what you need to hear. It's obvious that they're right, but you discount what they're telling you. Why? Because you've decided that you don't respect that person. You're not going to listen to that person. So because you don't respect that person, believe in what they're talking about, even though they tell you the truth, you're not going to listen to what they say. And here's what we say to ourselves. Well, really, what does she know anyway? Hmm? I mean, you know, she's never walked in my shoes before. Uh, he's never run a company. She's never navigated the complexity of family life. I mean, just look at her kids. Why should I listen to her, right? 
Now, here's what experts call that. They call that genetic fallacy or the fallacy of origins. Because I don't believe in the person who is telling me this, I'm not going to believe in the truth that they're telling me. So pause, take a moment, think about it, listen to what they're actually saying, and let it bother you. Now, today we're going to look at King David, and David has a perfect example of someone who does the right thing in this instance. He's a person who will listen and respond appropriately. Maybe it's irrational. Maybe it's an inconvenient tension. You don't know why. You can't explain it, but you have to stop. David comes on the pages of history as a shepherd boy in Israel. And one day a prophet shows up at his house and he's got a lot of brothers and the prophet says, no, bring me another one. Bring me another one until they get down to the youngest, David. And he says, this is the next king of Israel. And all of his brothers look at him like he doesn't even look like a king. But sure enough, that's what God's looking for because God looks at the heart, he says. And the problem, of course, is that they already have a king in Israel, and his name is King Saul. But King Saul wasn't doing a very good job. So they decided to replace him. God did, but not quite yet. So David and his legendary encounter goes out one day and he has a battle with Goliath, a Philistine giant, and he kills Goliath. And now immediately David is a celebrity in the whole country of Israel. And even the people in the territory of the Philistines, they know about David as well. And now David's popularity begins to exceed that of King Saul. And King Saul is jealous of David. He's so jealous, in fact, that he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to kill David because Saul wants his son, Jonathan, to be king. The people know David. They know he's a warrior. They know he's a leader. He's got a great reputation. And so these young men just flock to David. They just want to be around him. They're so impressed by him. They just obviously look up to him and admire him. And pretty soon, because Saul is hunting for David and Saul has a big army, these men volunteer and they'll say, we'll protect you, David. And they become David's little army, except they can't live anywhere. They're fugitives. They're always on the run because Saul is always tracking them down. Saul has this huge army, 3,000 people. That's a big army at that time. And so what happens is that they're in the springs of En Gedi. Now, let me just pause right there and tell you about the springs of En Gedi. If you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, then you go south, what you'll do is you'll go down to Jericho. There's no hotter place in the world, I don't think, than Jericho. I've been there twice. It didn't change. Okay? So I went with my wife and all these people from this church in Atlanta and we went to Israel and I took these little bottles and they had water in them and you could spritz yourself and they had little fans on them to cool off and all those people from Atlanta made fun of me until we got to Jericho when we got off the bus and it felt like we were stepping into an oven they said where's Joe Lay they said squirt me please turn the fan on me you are my new best friend right then we bonded together and so while you're there, you go on down, and there are places like the Dead Sea. It's a desert down there. Jericho's an oasis in the desert. And then Masada is down there. If you've ever seen the movie, read about Masada, we went to Masada. And then there's this place called the Springs of En So when I talk 
about the desert, you just picture this barren wasteland. There's no vegetation, and you should. But here's the deal. There's this hill that goes up to these caves and these springs, and there's this water that flows down the mountain. So wherever that water is, there's all kinds of vegetation. And because there's vegetation, there's these animals that look kind of like deer and kind of like goats. They've got these big horns, and they're out there, and they're still there today. They're described in the Bible. And so you hike up to this pond up there, and there are many caves. In fact, down the road just a little bit is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave several years ago. So I want you to get a picture of what this desert is actually like. And there they are, and and Saul has this intel, this good intel, that David and his army are somewhere close to the springs of En Gedi. And so he takes this column, and he goes out looking for David. So one afternoon, as they're winding their way through the rocky, windswept hills of the desert of En Gedi, Saul halts this whole column of his army of 3,000 men so he can find somewhere private to relieve himself. He spies a cave, and he heads off unaccompanied to take care of business. But what he doesn't know is that David and many of his army are inside the very cave that he's about to go into. Saul chooses a cave. What are the odds of that? Out of all the caves that are there, I mean, this is an amazing story. When David and his men see Saul coming into the cave, they just move further back into the cave. And so Saul goes into the cave. And from David's perspective, he can just see the silhouette of Saul. Now, Saul has just come in from that bright Middle Eastern sun, and he can't see anything. His eyes haven't adjusted to the dark, so he walks just far enough in for privacy. He takes off his robe. He tosses it to the side. He hikes up his outer garment. He squats down with facing the opening of the cave with his back to David and his men. Now, clearly, if you're David, this is an omen. This is a sign. This is where God has told him he's going to deliver his enemy. And so all David has to do is take care of business with Saul while he's there. David has already been anointed king. Everybody knows it. The only thing standing in his way is Saul. And now his enemy who's trying to kill him is unguarded, vulnerable, and unsuspecting. And David wasn't, if David wasn't thinking about that, we know his men were because they're saying, David, look, this is your chance. In fact, in 1 Samuel 24, it says this, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I mean, this is the perfect scenario. Uh, There's no civil war. There's a minimum bloodshed here. But what makes this story even more interesting is that David felt this tension and this hesitation. David hesitates, and and it wasn't exactly a reason that he could put his finger on. It just didn't make any sense. So now, finally, he decides that he's going to act. He draws out his dagger, and he creeps up behind Saul with every intention of slitting his throat. When he does that, David, if he's successful, then the world will change for David and his men as he knew it. 
But as he gets up there, this tension begins to increase. And David is really wrestling with himself, and he's paying attention to the tension. Something is bothering him, and then it dawns on him what's going on. Wait a minute. If I murder the king, this isn't war. This isn't combat. This is murder. This can't be right. Besides, who put King Saul on the throne of Israel anyway? It was God. God was the one who made him king. And I can't kill him. I can't kill God's anointed. I can't do that, even if he's trying to kill me. So with this amazing insight that he gains, he's got this pressure to act in spite of the expectations of his friends a few yards behind him. David changes course. Now, this is a part of the story where we have something in common with David. David didn't know the outcome of killing Saul. He had the chance to do it, but he couldn't predict the future. You see, we can't guarantee that we know the future. A lot of times we think we do. You watch basketball. You watch the Final Four, the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, and you say, I know who's going to win it all. And yesterday, all those prognosticators on TV, they were going over their list of people they said they would win it all, and they just had X's marked out on every one of them. All those people that they picked, they said, they're going to win. Guess what? Ah, they're wrong. And then they picked somebody else, and they came back, and they missed it again. You know, they don't know. You can't predict the future. Sometimes we think we can Sometimes we think we know how things are going to turn out, but we really don't know because we can't predict the future. And so what was David to do? You don't always predict outcomes accurately, do you? And sometimes you can be disappointed because of it. Disappointment is what we experience when we mispredict the future. Okay? When we ignore things we ought to pay attention to, that's when we are disappointed. So if there's a tension, pay attention to the tension. So back to David. He's inches from Saul, and it dawns on him, you know, I'll always be known as the man who killed the king. That'll be my story. That'll be the way that people refer to me. That will be the story that I have to tell my children and my grandchildren. And I don't want that to be my story. That's not the story I want to tell. And so what does David do? It says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, he cut off the corner of Saul's robe instead of killing him. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. I mean, David's so convicted, now he feels guilty because he cut off the robe of the, the corner of the robe of the Lord's anointed. He paid attention to his conscience. Right there, he changed course in midstream. Instead of murdering Saul, 
Even though Saul's back is to him, his robe is discarded, he goes and he cuts off the edge of the garment. And his men are in shock. And they're saying, he's saying, the Lord forbid I kill him. And they're saying, well, let us kill him. We'll go up there and kill him. And he rebuked them strongly. He said, no, you can't do that. And Saul gets up and he leaves the cave having no idea how closely he came to death that afternoon. And he walks back down the hill. The cave is up on a hill. And he walks back down the hill and he gets on his mule and he's about to go and continue his search for David when suddenly he hears a voice calling his name, Saul, Saul. And he turns and looks and 3,000 heads turn in that direction. And there's David at the mouth of the cave. And he's standing there and he's holding something in his hand. And what they see is that David has just come out of the cave where Saul had just entered. I want you to imagine the drama at that moment. Uh, holding something in his hand, the cloth, the color of Saul's robe. And Saul grabs his robe and he pulls it around. And sure enough, the corner of his robe is missing. And David is holding it there in his hand. And then David bows down to the ground. And he gets back up once again. And he makes a speech at that point. And then he ends this short speech with this powerful statement. And he's telling him, I couldn't kill the Lord's anointed. And he says this, may the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, David is saying, I am not going to kill the Lord's anointed, even though he's trying to kill me, even though the Lord has told me he's going to deliver him into my hands. God's going to have to take him out. I am not going to do it. It's not my place. God is my God. He, he's my father. He, he put me in this position. He put Saul in his position. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to let him deal with this. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. He's saying, Saul, I don't want to be like you. It's a measured response to an irrational tension. And now all the eyes are on Saul. And David has humiliated Saul. But here's the interesting thing. He didn't do it by military might. David humiliated Saul with his humility. And Saul knows, and all the people know, that David is the better man. So what's Saul going to do now? Is he going to continue to pursue David, even though David has just spared his life? Does he close his eyes and count to 100 to give David and his men a head start? Even Saul knows better. So he turns his army around, and he heads back to the city. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's the hero in that story? And more importantly, who's the hero? in your story. What story are you going to tell? What story do you want to tell your children and your grandchildren? If you want to tell a good story, then you've got to pay attention to the tension because here's what happens. Just a few months later, Saul and his army are in battle with the Philistines again. And the Philistine infantry is there. And so a random archer shoots a random arrow and somehow it goes into a seam in Saul's armor, and he's mortally wounded. 
And he doesn't want to die at the hands of the Philistines, so he falls on his own sword and he dies. And the Israelite army is routed. And word gets back to the city that Saul is dead and all the people embrace David and David becomes the king without murdering Saul. And David must have thought to himself, well, if I'd known this was the way it was going to work out, it would have made that whole cave thing a whole lot easier to deal with, right? So pay attention to the tension because we don't know the future. And we can't control the outcome. Now, what does that have to do with you? Well, it's just simply this. When you're about to make a decision and something is gnawing at you, something just doesn't seem right, you can't put your finger on it, but you know it's not something that you need to do. Stop. Let it bother you. Give it the attention that it needs. Give it some time. And then don't ignore it. But make the right decision. If there's tension that deserves your attention, then take advantage of that. And like David, you'll be glad you did. Now, we're going to pick up there next week with the fourth question, and that is the maturity question. That's number four. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us enough to stop us in our tracks. Thank you for stirring our spirits and giving us hesitation when it's inconvenient and doesn't make sense. Help us to pause and ask questions and then give us the courage and the wisdom to act on what we discover. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,